What are the factors that could lead to the demise of the human population on this planet? Could our species face extinction in the face of climate change? University of Arizona Emeritus professor and author of the Nature Bat's last blog, Guy McPherson, brings us up to speed on the latest indicators of the climate collapse. And could a war be triggered in Eurasia that could lead to a nuclear exchange with Russia or China? Geopolitical analyst and Center for Research on Globalization research associate Madi Nazamroya takes us through the major flashpoints on the world stage that could erupt into a major great powers confrontation in coming months. On this week's program, Doomsday Scenarios, conversations with Guy McPherson and Madi Nazamroya. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 26, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Robert Perry recently described accurately the New York Times as Washington's version of Big Brother's Orwell 1984, Two Minutes of Hate. The hate of the enemy keeps Washington's wars going and conditions Americans to accept their own loss of liberty as habeas corpus, due process, and right to life crumble in front of their unseeing eyes, eyes blinded by propaganda. At the just-concluded St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, to which I was invited but was unable to go, which I regret as I might have been introduced to Putin, Putin gave believable assurances to a large array of foreign businesses present that Russia was committed to the rule of law and that their activities in Russia are safe. If you believe any of the propaganda fed to you by the Western prostitutes, including Bloomberg, about the so-called collapsing Russian economy, you can disabuse yourself of the lies by reading Putin's account of the Russian economy. That comes from the article, Propaganda Reigns in the West, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted June 24th. I would like to stress you are expanding the North Atlantic bloc, NATO. The Soviet Union no longer exists, while well, the bloc was set up to counterbalance the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is gone, the Warsaw Treaty is gone, while NATO not only exists, it is expanding. You are doing it, while China and we are not creating any blocs. We do not have a bloc mentality. We are trying, and successfully it seems, we are trying to think globally, and not only sharing responsibly but also trying to find mutually acceptable solutions and compromise. We never proceed from the position of force. That was from President Vladimir Putin in a conversation with Charlie Rose found in the article 
Vladimir Putin on the global economy, geopolitics, and Russia-Europe relations. Posted June 24th, originally appearing in the website of the Presidency of Russia. Going to the beginning and back to the top, who exactly was correct in 1999 to 2000? Who was correct from 2005 to 2008 about an impending crisis? The answer, of course, is the very same people screaming bloody murder today. The financial system will come apart from the seams. Are those who were correct before now crying wolf? Or are they saying the same things for the same reason and forecasting the same results as before? That comes from the article, Crying Wolf, Impending Global Financial Collapse Will Change the World Order by Bill Holter, posted June 25th. The United States is seeking to have a never-ending war in the Middle East which would make the countries there unable to stand up to Israel, says former CIA contractor Stephen Kelly. Quote, The purpose of creating this group ISIL is to have a never-ending war in the region that serves several purposes. Obviously, it's going to break apart the countries and disrupt the people and reduce their ability to stand up to Israel, he told Press TV on Tuesday. Kelly went on to say that, quote, the other thing is providing the constant flow of orders for weapons from the military-industrial complex back home, which of course is feeding a lot of money to the senators that are pushing for these wars, unquote. A new report said the Pentagon is paying monthly stipends to the so-called moderate rebels in Syria who are being trained to fight the ISIL, Takfiri, terrorists. The Pentagon is paying stipends of $250 to $400 to the rebels, said Pentagon spokeswoman Elissa Smith. That comes from the article, U.S. created the Islamic State, ISIS, for sake of Israel and military-industrial complex, ex-CIA contractor. Posted June 24th, originally appearing at the Islamic Republic News Agency. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Warnings about runaway climate change are coming with increasing frequency, although mainstream environmentalists, outspoken scientists, and even the Distinguished Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change present the crisis as something that could be mitigated through strenuous government action. A former guest on this program disagrees and thinks there's little we can do now except prepare for our looming demise within the next two decades. Guy McPherson is Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Arizona. He's the author of the 2013 book, Going Dark, which outlines the strong case that runaway climate change is here. He, his blog, Nature Bats Last, contains a monster climate change essay with dozens of links to peer-reviewed analysis outlining what's... Uh, he sees as the hopeless reality of near-term human extinction due to climate change. Guy is also a co-host of the weekly radio podcast Nature Bats Last, which airs Tuesdays on the Progressive Radio Network. He joins us once again to update us on our climate predicament and other warnings on the horizon. So, Professor Guy McPherson, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure, as always, to visit with you. 
Now, uh, you, we caught you in the middle of a speaking tour on the west coast of North America. Um, so maybe you, you want to give us a bit of a, a talk. You may give us a, a bit of a brief uh, outline of some of the things that you've been talking about to audiences there. Sure. I started in Vancouver, British Columbia, then went over to Vancouver Island, British Columbia, as far south as Eugene, Oregon. And all along the way, people are talking about the drought and what a significant impact it has had on vegetation here. Lifelong gardeners are surprised at how abrupt climate change is impacting their ability to grow food. Uh, Nearly everybody who's paying attention has commented on the trees that are dying. So it's it's been quite a receptive audience for the most part uh, because they're immersed in abrupt climate change and find themselves surprised that it's happening so quickly uh, in this place. Um, I, in my presentations, and I've delivered a few so far, I focus on the timeline within which I believe habitat will be gone for humans, and not too long after the habitat is gone, there won't be any humans left on the planet anymore. So that's, that's the general idea is how long do we have with habitat on this planet for our own species, Homo sapiens? Now, I know that uh, I, when uh, I first spoke to you, you were saying that uh, it, it looked as if we had maybe up until about the year 2030, which isn't too long, too far away. Uh, have you, uh, is there any reason to, to change that calculation? Uh, might we be losing habitat sooner uh, or, or possibly later? Um, it's difficult for me to imagine we have that long. Uh, we, d- depending upon the various events that occur in the near future, we could reach four degrees Celsius above baseline in as little as 18 months, even at the relatively slow rate of overall planetary warming we have observed so far, we are losing the ability of plants and animals to keep up they can't keep up with the slow rate of climate change that's happened so far by a factor of 10,000 times. So now that we've entered the abrupt phase of climate change, with with it, it appears likely um, that we'll reset 4 degrees Celsius mark in a short period of time. I I don't see that we could possibly make it to 2030, but it's pretty difficult to predict the future, obviously. Um, I just don't see habitat being around for nearly that long. Now, you've, uh, you, there, there, you talk about that four degrees centigrade above uh, baseline as being critical because that – is it generally accepted among the scientific community that at four degrees above baseline that, there's, that habitat for human uh, habitation is, is just not there? Interestingly, Oliver Tickell wrote a paper in The Guardian on the 10th of August, 2008, so now nearly seven years ago, and the article is headlined, On a Planet 4C Hotter, All We Can Prepare For Is Extinction, and he was writing specifically about human extinction. I think that's pretty conservative. It represented the viewpoint at the time, the scientific viewpoint. I think it's conservative because we've had no humans on Earth at 3.3 degrees Celsius above baseline in the past, baseline meaning the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or about 1750. However, it's become clear that 4C is locked in now, 
and in the very near term, there's no way to avoid it. And so most climate scientists I know are backpedaling terribly or moving the goalposts, as it were, and claiming that 4C won't be a problem. Considering that that the ability of plants and native animals to keep up with the slow rate of change, and they lag by a factor of 10,000 times, I don't see how accelerating the process is going to help any. Mm. I know that you've been very critical of the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in terms of uh, the, uh, I think I heard you refer to it as the nonsensical conservatism around these issues. Could you maybe, what what is your understanding of why the IPCC is so uh, hesitant about pronouncing what seems to be clearly spelled out in the scientific literature? Yes, I have been quite critical of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I think it's well warranted. They operate by a process that is very, very conservative. When they begin their assessment process, they accept for consideration only the referee journal literature. And then they meet in these subgroups. The subgroups must reach consensus on every item. If, If one person in the group says, know that there's no way that methane is 100 times more powerful than than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas over the short term, then that's out. It's no longer under consideration. So it's it's pretty watered down by the process of consensus. And then after that uh, process, which takes a couple of years, it goes to the policy realm where it must be approved through the political process before the information is released, before the assessment is released. So by the time the assessment comes out, the information in it is at least five years old, and in some cases, 10 years old. It takes a long time to get a paper even published in the refereed journal literature. It takes a minimum of 18 months and typically longer from the time of submission. Well, by the time it's submitted, the data have to be crunched and, and collected and the graduate student and postdocs hired to start the process. So, you know, you're back in this thing and up and back in this thing up. By the time it appears in the referee journal literature, it's old news. And that old news is the basis for the IPCC beginning their consensus process. So it's just very old information. As, as one minor example, the word methane was mentioned t- exactly twice in the hundreds of pages of the fifth assessment, twice in a single table, where it was concluded methane was a problem for the grandchildren. <laughs> oh boy. And I, I know that me- me- methane figures quite prominently in your list of uh, uh, positive feedback loops. Well, not positive in the human sense, but uh, in terms of like self-reinforcing. In, in other words, that uh, you know, once you get your... Te- uh, these temperatures go up to a certain level, it becomes kind of like a runaway train. And even if we were to end all of our inputs tomorrow of CO2, it's going to continue warming up faster, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, Tack on to that, that, that exponential release of methane into the atmosphere. Tack on to that, just one other of the 50 irreversible self-reinforcing feedback loops I know about that's um, upper tropospheric moistening, uh, the the water vapor that uh, traps heat in the upper troposphere. 
um, uh, an analysis from August 2014 published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences verifies the presence of the largest known feedback me- mechanism for amplifying anthropogenic climate change. So, you know, this is number 38 or 50 or 45 or something like that on my, on my list of 50 of these irreversible self-reinforcing feedback loops. And, you know, that, that ignores methane. That, that's just one other in this long list. Uh, methane is a really, really big deal that has been largely ignored by the scientific community with the exception of the likes of courageous Paul Beckwith and courageous Natalia Shikova and her partner Igor Semelotov. Other than that, there really aren't very many people talking about it from a scientific perspective, and I think that's a real tragedy. Now, the last time I spoke with you, it was around the time of the, the COP conference in uh, Lima, and uh, I th- there have been some developments since then that I, I wonder if you want to maybe point out a, a couple of the more significant discoveries that are coming out that have, uh, you know, m- taking a bad situation and, and making it worse. <laughs> yes. Um, first of all, uh, it's, it's notable that at that conference, Paul Beckwith made a prediction. He had been saying that we could expect uh, a methane-induced warming to cause a rapid rise in temperature. He came right out and said that it's underway at the meeting in Lima. So that's a big deal. Um, Even more recently, from about two weeks ago, uh, sorry, from a week ago, the 19th of January, a paper in Science Advances, this quote from the abstract, the sixth mass extinction is already underway. In an interview with a senior author, coincident with the release of that paper, says, quote, life would take many millions of years to recover, and our species itself would likely disappear early on. So it's it's becoming accepted within the very conservative scientific community that we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction or mass extinction event, and that as large-bodied mammals, uh, humans are, are not going to be the last to go extinct. Tack on just just one more paper from earlier this month in PLOS Biology, and and the title goes like this: Suitable days for plant growth disappear under projected climate change. That's disappear under projected climate change, and the projection is, of course, out to 2100, the year almost everybody uses when talking about climate impacts, and then the subtitle is potential human and biotic vulnerability, again, reflecting the conservative nature of the scientific community. It's a potential problem for humans. And I love this part, potential human and biotic vulnerability is if humans aren't really part of the biota, which are somehow separate from that. So here again, the, the, the journal literature and even the language within it is slow to catch up with the reality of the situation that we're in the midst of above climate change right now. And, and it will be manifest and is being manifest in the inability to grow plants on this planet. That's a problem. Yeah. Could, could you maybe drill down a little bit on the, the, the issue of uh, the, the uh, loss of ice at the poles and uh, like how dramatic that has been and how significantly that will alter the, uh, the climate? Yes, and here's... Uh, a relatively minor example from uh, about a week ago 
in first a little context, in 2007 and 2012, when the Arctic ice mass uh, fell precipitously over short periods of time, um, the, the, the term century event was coined to describe what happens when 100,000 square kilometers of ice are lost in a day. From one day to the next, 100,000 square kilometers of ice just disappear from the Arctic Ocean. Well, between, I believe it was June 16th and 17th of this year, as reported at Cryosphere Today, there was a three-century event. 320,000 square kilometers of ice disappeared from the Arctic in one 24-hour period. That's an area the size of New Mexico, one of the larger states, the one I occupy in the southwestern United States. That is absolutely huge and completely ignored within the media and, of course, by the governments who, in my eyes, ought to be telling us about things like this. Mm-hmm. And do you have any intuition about why that might be? Um, sure, the corporations that control the media, and there are only a handful that control more than 90% of the media in the United States, and, and similar trend applies for the world, obviously. Those same, same corporations that own the media outlets have significant influence over the government, I would say, to put it mildly. It, it used to be one citizen, one vote. I would argue at this point that it's a lot closer to one dollar, one vote, or to be more pragmatic about it, one million dollars, one vote. When you control the message through the media and you more directly control the decisions made within the governments, you can exert considerable influence over what kind of message is coming out. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there's been considerable criticism on this program about uh, geoengineering efforts uh, that, uh, you know, the solar radiation management, including from yourself. And I'm wondering if you're seeing any signs that uh, these sorts of geoengineering efforts may be already being put into place or or contemplated. I know you're you're citing the literature. You've been uh, you're saying that this is just not the way to go. But uh, do, do you see any? Do you have any intuition about whether that's being put into practice right now? That's a good question. And occasionally, I see some bit of writing suggesting quite strongly that the IPCC projections assume geoengineering is either going on or soon will be, and primarily that's through solar radiation management. Add on to that the the notion that global dimming is already cooling the planet more than it otherwise would be, and the loss of reflective particulates from the atmosphere would cause the planet to warm up very, very considerably in a short period of time. And it could very well be that there is a concerted effort to either 
now be implementing or considering implementing solar radiation management or some other form of geoengineering. Even though you know the synopsis of the journal literature came in February of this year, February 10th, from the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, when they conclude that geoengineering is not a viable solution for the climate predicament. And I love that, that they put it that way, climate predicament, not a problem, as we're frequently told it is. Problems can be solved. Predicaments can't even be addressed. And they, they point out that geoengineering is not a viable solution for the climate predicament. So that said, desperate times for call for desperate measures. I have little doubt that even if all the evidence indicates something will not work, that the people pulling the levers of industry will still give those things a try. Mm. So now when you're looking at the way we can potentially uh, respond uh, as the, the body politic, are you seeing any optimistic signs, uh, I mean, whether it's from policymakers or from your fellow scientists or from the wider public? Uh, like you, you just mentioned you're, you're on your tour and you're getting some positive res- responses there, but or at least interest, but – uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, if, if you've been seeing significant changes uh, in in terms of the way that we are responding to the the kinds of warnings that you've been put out uh, compared to you know three four years ago. Yes, absolutely. For one thing, the count now of scientists, pundits, uh, public figures who will admit that we're in the midst of an extinction event that is almost certain to take out our species early on. That list has grown quite large in the last three years. Uh, It includes folks like Randy Malamud, Regents Professor at Georgia State University, who wrote a piece for the Huffington Post in December of last year, which includes this line, quote, it's time to accept our impending demise. Robert Burroughs added his voice in, in the mainstream media outlet. Um, Paul Ehrlich does the same with an interview with MSNBC in January of this year. And so the list is growing. Perhaps most importantly among these people is a a writer for a United States television program broadcast on HBO, a program called The Newsroom. Aaron Sorkin, who's always been really cutting edge with his writing and with his understanding of reality, wrote a, a piece that addresses our climate predicament, and and in the in this fictional program, makes it quite clear that we don't have long. And he's only taking into account carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The program talks about several things that will occur in the future that are already occurring right now: food and water shortages, extremely large storms, uh, spread of deadly disease, those kinds of things. So, so when it makes it onto the television. Um, in the United States, that's when it starts to have some impact and reach the public consciousness. Tack on one more item, and this is from uh, three days ago in the Daily Mash. The Daily Mash is a UK publication, much like The Onion in this country. It's, it's satire-based. And the headline there is, Humanity to Keep Tweeting Positive Slogans until point of extinction. And in the final paragraph, 
Here's a quote. Hours after the last human keels over in a desert wasteland, there will be an automated tweet saying simply, love what you do. It's almost as if somebody has figured out my message and is promulgating it through these, quote, satirical outlets. Hmm. Well, Guy McPherson, I, it's... Uh because yeah, I wish I could say it's been a pleasure to have you on because you're you seem to be uh you always seem to have a little bit more bad news for us but uh I I do thank you and genuinely appreciate uh, your your efforts to get this message out uh, I think that our our listeners will take great uh uh satisfaction in hearing uh this uh unfiltered uh truth about the the kind of uh challenges we face so thank you very much and all the best for the uh, remainder of your tour well thank you michael it's a pleasure to be with you as always and and i don't you know it, it doesn't give me great joy to present the really 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 dire situation that dire straits we're in but i do think people have a right to know what i know what the governments know what the media know but are unwilling or unable to report Guy McPherson is Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Arizona. His blog, Nature Bats Last, can be found at the website GuyMcPherson.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists have, as of January, moved the hands of their doomsday clock to three minutes before midnight in the wake of not only climate change, but also the failure to reduce nuclear arsenals around the globe. Tensions have been growing between the U.S. and Russia, both nuclear-armed states. Could there be a scenario in coming weeks which could escalate into a third and final world war? To help us examine the question, we spoke with Mahdi Nazamroya. Mahdi Darius Nazamroya is an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst and the author of The Globalization of NATO from Clarity Press and a forthcoming book, The War on Libya and the Recolonization of Africa. He's a sociologist and research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization and joins us by phone from his home in Ottawa. So thanks for joining us, Mahdi Nazamroya. Thank you for having me. Okay, so um, here it is. It's... Uh, the the end of June 2015, and uh, we've been seeing a, a lot of uh, major uh, and concerning developments. Uh, I know that, uh, for example, we've seen uh, a major buildup of heavy equipment along Russia's uh, western border, uh, a number of NATO military exercises being conducted in the region. What do you read into these measures? I mean, could these be defensive measures of some sort, or are they intended for some kind of a looming offensive? What do you think? Well, they are offensive in nature. Uh, if we look at every war that NATO has fought, it's been offensive. Uh, so, I mean, we haven't seen anything defensive in regards to uh, theater wars from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization since 1949. Uh, and specifically, I'm talking about the post-Cold War period. When I mean the post-Cold uh, War period, I mean 1991 afterwards, after the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union. 
So if you look at Yugoslavia, it was an offensive war. Of course, it was billed as a humanitarian mission. You look at Libya, it, again, it's an offensive attack. Look at Afghanistan, it's an offensive attack. Of course, nine, the, the attacks on uh, the United States, the September 11th attacks, they were not perpetrated by the Taliban or any Afghanis. In fact, most of the, the people who did it were Saudi Arabian. Uh, they, but they still put the blame on uh, the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, and they invaded. Uh, so, I mean, if you look at all these uh, operations that NATO is involved in, they've all been uh, offensive. So they're putting 40,000 troops now, uh, tanks, armored vehicles, uh, jets, uh, special forces, uh, they're putting all this on NATO's border in the three Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, in Poland, uh, which is next to uh, Kaliningrad, which is an enclave of the Russian Federation on the, on the southern part of the Baltic shore, as well as Russia's ally Belarus, which is also a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a, a Russian equivalent to NATO, that includes Armenia, uh, as I said, Belarus, uh, obviously Russia, because it's the Russian equivalent, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, are all members of this military defense pact, which is, uh, we can refer to it, maybe it might be insulting, but as a mini-NATO. Um, so they're putting troops on, in these places, as well as Romania and Bulgaria, and creating regional uh, regional. Um, uh, regional field headquarters for them there so they can act independently. Uh, they, they are encircling Russia. Of course, they've been cooperating with Georgia to the south of Russia. The Georgian border, the Georgian air defenses are integrated with NATO's. Uh, Turkey is a NATO member on the southern shores of the Black Sea. The United States has been in technical violation of uh, the treaties about sending warships to the uh, Black Sea, it can be argued. So they're sending troops there. And of course, there, there's tensions over Crimea. The European Union has renewed sanctions against Crimea, which is separate from, uh, which this is a separate set of sanctions against Crimea specifically. And there's, they've renewed for six months the sanctions against uh, the Russian Federation. Moldova has a lot of problems. Um, there's a lot of tensions in that country. It has two regions. Uh, that have separatist tendencies. One of them is a separatist region. Are you talking about Transnistria? Yes, Transnistria. That is a separate region to itself. And there's Russian peacekeepers there, okay, under the auspices of the, uh, of the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is an organization for all the ex-Soviet republics, except for the three Baltic republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. They never joined it. Georgia also left it uh, after the war over South Ossetia between um, um, between the Georgian uh, government and the Russian Federation. But that breakaway region, ever since um, the problems in Ukraine erupted with Euromaidan uh, and the ouster uh, and the coup against uh, President Viktor Yanukovych, um, that region. The biggest, the biggest plurality there is the Russians, but there's also Ukrainians there uh, and Bulgarians. Uh, they they want to unite with Russia. Uh, Moldo Moldovans are ethnically Romanian. Uh, they speak Romanian. They, their histor history is tied to Romania. Um, 
And, uh, but the people in this breakaway region are Slavic. So Bulgarians, Ukrainians, Russians, many of them wanted to unite with Russia. And in fact, the Russian deputy prime minister, who, uh, um, who when he was uh, visiting that region, he, he had a petition that was given to him, signed by many citizens of that separatist region, to take back to Moscow, asking for them to become a part of uh, Russia. Uh, before he was boarding his plane, or as he was boarding his plane, that petition was taken away from him by the Moldovan authorities. And, and in fact, I want to point out that uh, Moldova recently had elections which were interfered with by the European Union. Uh, almost, we we can say that uh, it's at the same, it, it's the part of the same trend that occurred in Ukraine, uh, mm. and as well as other former Soviet republics. So. Georgia, uh, Kyrgyzstan, where the Rose, uh, respectively, the Rose Revolution and the Tulip uh, Revolution occurred. Well, the, in Moldova, Moldova, there's been interference like this to bring it into the orbit of the European Union and what is called the Euro-Atlantic Zone, which really means Euro-American, as in the United States. Just... The orbit of the U European Union and the United States. This country, Moldova, has, has been organically tied to uh, Russia, of course, there's ties to Romania, and uh, it's organically been tied to Ukraine and Russia and the, the post-Soviet state space. It's an ex-Soviet republic. Uh, it has a lot of ties uh, uh, to uh, its eastern neighbors. Okay. Could you um, give us some sense of uh, what this Trident Jaguar 2015, I mean, is that a, a particularly unprecedented uh, exercise? I mean, we're, what we're seeing now is we're seeing Russophobia being used for exercises that have been ongoing. Of course, in Europe, the United States is, is using Russophobia uh, to its advantage because um, it's using it to uh, uh, basically integrate the European Union even more into uh, with the United States under uh, um, a transatlantic uh, uh, trade agreement that, that's been go going on. It's doing the same thing with the Chinese. It's, it's creating problems between the Chinese and its neighbors, so it can, it can basically create another trading block, which excludes the Chinese, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The, there's an equivalent with the European Union, and they're using, they're using the tensions they're creating between the European Union and the Russian Federation, as well as its allies, so that includes Belarus. They're using this as, an, as, an, as a means of getting concessions from the European Union and, and from preventing um, the European Union from, from getting closer economically and politically with Russia. If we look at it from an organic, logical, uh, geopolitical uh, point of view, it's, it's much better for the Europeans. I mean, I'm not saying anybody should not integrate with anybody in the world. I mean, I'm not creating borders where there shouldn't be borders, but um, it's much easier for them to uh, trade with the Russians, to integrate with the Russians. They're right next to each other. Uh, they need Russian natural resources, which are more accessible, easier, easier to access. It's much easier for them to trade with the, with the Russian Federation, but uh, instead the United States is preventing the, uh, the European Union and the Russian Federation from getting together, from integrating, um, 
at one level it doesn't want the Germans and the Russians to uh, to uh, to integrate and to become even closer strategically and in all senses. Um, this has been a long-standing policy. Actually, it's an Anglo-American policy. The British first had it, and then the Americans adopted it. This is what the British did because they wanted the European continent divided, and the Americans adopted this once they became the main power, or at least one of the main powers in Europe after 1945. Uh, so it was always to keep the, the, the Germans and the Russians apart. In fact, when NATO was founded, that's, the saying was... <laughs> It was it was to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And this policy is being continued to this very day. And this is why the United States and General uh, uh, Breadlove and the NATO NATO Secretary General are 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 instigating. Uh, tensions with the Russian Federation. Roddy, could you talk about, uh, you brought up China just a minute ago, could you talk about tensions that are growing between the United States and China? I know that there's been some uh, apparent saber-rattling over the, uh, the, the, uh, these artificial islands in the South China Sea known as the Spratly Islands. Do you think that, uh, is there more to that than what we're hearing from uh, these uh, uh, officials well, the United States is doing this for several reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is to instigate China's neighbors against it. Some of these neighbors are more or less colonies, or the governments are, are, are vassals and satellites of the United States. So the Philippines is one of them. In fact, it's very odd that the, the president of the Philippines, whose country was invaded by the Japanese during the Second World War in the Pacific Theater, Asia-Pacific Theater, he 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 would re, he would say that we want the Jap, the Japanese back militarily in the Philippines. That's okay. Maybe it's a different era. He's inviting the Japanese back, even though there's sensitivities in that entire region about Japan's uh, history during uh, the Second World War. Um, he says we want Japanese troops in the Philippines now, and he's he's he called the Chinese Nazis. He referred to them as Nazis. Okay, so, I mean, it's very strange language that's been going on. And Japan, of course, since its defeat in 1945, had a constitution uh, that prevented it from having a military. It has a self-defense force. That constitution, they've, breached, they've been breaching it for years. So Japan is militarizing its alliance with Australia. There's um, trilateral uh, security uh, entente between the United States, Australia, Japan that's been tightened. And a noose is being uh, tightened around the Chinese. So, I mean, of course, the United States would love nothing more than for India and China to go at it like it, it, uh, it engineered in the Middle East between Iraq and Iran uh, during the Iran-Iraq war. Eight years of war, uh, it was an, uh, Kissinger loved it a lot of the um, uh, lot of U.S. Uh, uh, technocrats and, and, and uh, strategists loved it, getting the Iraqis and the Iranians to kill each other. And in one sense or another, this is what they would like to see the Indians and the Chinese do, or they'd like to see India as a spoiler in that region and to create, uh, because of its tensions with China, to, prov uh, to create problems between the Russians and the Chinese to an extent. Uh, and to prevent Eurasia, ultimately prevent Eurasian unification. The, the whole uh, the whole objective here, the core of the matter is the United States does not want to see Eurasian integration. And this has been a longstanding policy of the United States since, since bef at the start of the Cold War. In fact, 
one of America's top uh, strategists, um, uh, Nicholas Spikeman, he said, he said, she says very clearly, we don't want the we don't want a major power in in Eurasia. Brzezinski also re- repeats this. We don't want any major power there. We and uh, we don't want these er- these areas to be unified. It's better they're divided. In fact, that's why they divided Germany there after the Second World War into East Germany, West Germany. I mean, um, even Japan, they were talking about uh, possibly partitioning it, uh, as well as. Uh, uh, the Americans. The only reason Japan got back on its feet was because, because uh, the communists took over China. Mao and the Communist Party took over China. Otherwise, they, Japan would have been slumbering for a long time and not become an industrial power as it is. Uh, uh, it's a it's a policy of using gendarmes, of course, as as well to an extent. you talk a little bit more about the Iranian uh, situation? Uh, just last month, we uh, saw an article about uh, U.S. and Turkey training 15,000 anti-Syrian troops. So it, it seems as if they're, they're not quite done with Syria yet. So what, 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 where are things sitting now, as far as you can tell, in terms of some sort of an impending uh, assault on Syria progressing to Iran? Well, I think the United States is thinking uh, not short term for Syria. It's, it's. I think that it's building an insurg- a multinational insurgent army uh, to invade Syria eventually. Uh, that's why it's training them in Saudi Arabia, Turkey. Um, all this talk by the Saudi Arabians after they attacked Yemen about creating an Arab, a pan-Arab army through the Arab League. It's tied to attacking Syria and Iran, as well as their regional allies. Uh, the, the attack on Yemen also has to be viewed in context of Iran, because one of the um, prerequisites to an attack on Iran is controls of the control of the Gulf of Aden. Uh, the reasons for this have a lot to do with. Uh, uh, control of the Gulf of Aden would allow oil, first of all, because the Persian Gulf, the Gulf of Hormuz, would be closed by the could be closed by the Iranians. But they, they would need that area controlled because the oil would be sent instead of through the Persian Gulf through pipelines going there, and they would need it for logistics to to help uh, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries in the Persian Gulf, so Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar the United Arab Emirates. The Sultanate of Oman is also part of the Gulf Cooperation Council, but I'm not going to list it as one of the countries, because if there's a war with Iran, I, I, I think that most probably it'll stay neutral. It has good relations with the Iranians, and um, even the the secret talks that started between Tehran and Washington, I mean, Oman helped facilitate them. So I, I think Oman's not going to get involved, and there are tensions with the Saudi. Saudi regime and Oman's monarchy because of some of the differences and the cordial relationship uh, Muscat has with Tehran. So um, the, Yemen is a prerequisite, and that's very important to keep in mind. And that's why 
the Saudis and the, uh, the United States, as well as the Israelis who are involved in Yemen, want to have a, a, a pacified, subservient regime in uh, Sana'a uh, that listens to Saudi Arabia and Washington. And that's why you have the war there. But, I mean, uh, I, the United States is negotiating with Iran. But remember, there's always contingencies. Yes, it, it would prefer for Iran to be co-opted. Yes, it would prefer for Damascus to be co-opted. And in fact, it has tried to co-opt Damascus. I followed it for over 10 years, all the meetings that the European Union and the United States have. And every time they try to co-opt the Syrians, they said, break your alliance with Iran, break your alliance with the Palestinian resistance movements and with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And this was a constant theme, and this is one of the reasons they're going after Syria, of course. Um, there's variances between what the different actors want, so more or less this is one of the reasons. And uh, um, they would like to co-opt the Iranians, and these negotiations are basically of, uh, it's Obama's Nixon in China moment. You know, uh, that's what they would like, and they would like to turn the Iranians against the Russians first, and then against the Chinese. Uh, but that's not going to happen, and they're reserving, they are reserving, or like I said, there's contingency plans, uh, contingency plans for an attack on Iran. Of course, I think it will be extremely hard, and I think it's outlandish, but the military buildup, which Prime Minister Stephen Harper has dragged Canada into, and Justin Trudeau, the leader of the opposition uh, Liberal Party, has said uh, he'll he'll take us out of to an extent. He says he'll send more um, advisors in, but you know we won't be part of a combat mission. Um, this war that Harper has dragged us into is actually the the nucleus of of of, of a militarization of that region for an attack on Iran. The military assets and that are being marshaled in the name of fighting ISIS in Iraq, and as well as Syria, and Harper also said he wouldn't bomb Syria, but he has, and they're bombing Syria, destroying it as a state, weakening it by attacking infrastructure in the name of fighting against ISIS or ISIL or Daesh, which they helped create, and which I'd like to point out, the Canadian embassy in Amman uh, was uh, caught uh, helping recruit for. Um, the Prime Minister's former head of security is a hand-picked ambassador of Canada to Jordan was uh, that that embassy w was uh, was uh, instructing an ISIS recruiter in fact who took British girls from Turkey into Syria and the Reuters has talked about it the CBC and Radio Canada this build-up in that region is 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 part of that contingency of attacking Iran and Syria. Okay, could I ask you one very important question? As you survey the geostrategic chessboard, are there any major flashpoints right now that you have your eye on that could deliberately or accidentally trigger a larger, greater military exchange between the, uh, the major powers? Ukraine is one of them. And uh, I don't, but everybody I'm sure has their eyes on Ukraine. The United States gets even further involved in Ukraine. I mean, the, the things could go out of control there. Syria is one of them. It's a red line for the Iranians. The Syrians are Iran's strategic allies. There's a strategic alliance between Damascus and Tehran. It's the oldest strategic alliance in the Middle East, uh, and it's the staunchest one. That That is a red line. Um, the other points, lesser, the South China Sea, 
the Chinese themselves are saying that a world war or a major war could erupt because of the tensions in the South China Sea. So the United States is sending, uh, well, it's been sending for a while with its Asia-Pacific pivot, uh, military assets to that part of the world to encircle the Chinese. North Korea could end up being uh, another flashpoint. And uh, despite what the Chinese say or the Russians say, they will always support the North Koreans, even even though there's a PR problem with the North Koreans, a public relations problem, and outside, the outside world, many people uh, misjudge them. Sometimes, sometimes it's misjudgment, sometimes it's legitimate. This could end up being a flashpoint, and the, we mustn't forget there's nuclear weapons there the United States has, and there's um, millions of troops, and South Korea's military in a war scenario is under direct control from the Pentagon. That's, that's something that's understood. Um, Japan's militarizing as well. And, of course, all those troops are not there for North Korea. Those troops are there for Beijing. <laughs> the United States has millions of troops there are not there to fight the North Korea. North Korea is a pretext. It's a pretext for China. That's the reason why the Chinese got involved in the Korean War. They didn't want American troops directly on their border, and that's what would have happened if the United States overran North Korea, and that's why the Chinese intervened. And they kept their word, and they will intervene in other situations. They'll intervene if there's a war with Iran. Um, we've had flag officers in China say that. That, that means the admiral-level admiral uh, um, military officials have said that. Uh, they, inter they will intervene. Um, another place that we should keep our eyes on, and it's less known about, I don't think it'll be a flashpoint, is Sri Lanka. There was, a, there was some type of a color revolution there uh, lately. The government was overthrown. The president, president's relatives have been put in jail. Um, and John Kerry was there, and he basically more or less visited. And after that, the government, he more, more or less was helping, giving instructions I think, the, of course, the Indians were part of this, too. There's some convergences in interests. Um, uh, these are all places I would look at, and we shouldn't forget more or less our own backyard or our hemisphere. So Venezuela uh, is a place we should look at. It's a hot point. Um, it won't lead to a world war, but, I mean, there could be an internal civil war. There could be a war of Colombia. The Venezuelans have always been afraid that the United States might invade. This is something they've said, and it's not r rhetoric. In fact, they've created uh, self-defense forces and stuff like that. I'm not talking about military. I'm talking about militias in case that ever happens. Mahdi, what are the chances that we'll manage to make it through the next three or four years without a nuclear war? Bottom line. I don't want to um, jump the gun and, and, and uh, scare people on that. The danger is there, and um, the scientists, you know, this, during the Cold War, there was in the, the, the doomsday clock, you know, they'd say uh, because the tensions were this many seconds to midnight. Well, fortunately, we're extremely close to midnight. This is higher than most periods in the Cold War. I looked at it. I don't know how many seconds we are according to the the um, the, the doomsday clock, but it, it's it's been the highest. It's been... It's at the highest point it's been since the end of the Cold War. Let me phrase it this way. I'm not saying there'll be a nuclear war, but there's a much greater threat of nuclear war now than there was during much of the cold, most of the Cold War. Uh, and sadly, 
people have forgotten about the uh, the dangers of a cold war. Uh, there's no public opinion, no no public uh, uh, sentiment that uh, keeps them in check. So I mean, the the, the United States is uh, talking about using tactical weapons. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons have been sanitized to a degree, uh, you know, and the United States sh shares nuclear weapons with NATO allies, which is against the non Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's against the NPT. It's a direct violation of the NPT. And uh, it does share with them. Other NATO countries, even if they don't have nuclear weapons, have military hardware designed to deliver nuclear weapons. So the, you, you, like for example, there's uh, uh, a lot of NATO members can deliver nuclear weapons. And and one other thing I want to point out is the United States and its NATO allies actually reserve the right to violate the NPT in the scenario where they're losing a war. So mm -hmm. the NPT is not really it's really um, more than a treaty uh, uh, of non-proliferation. It's actually a treaty of of keeping other countries weak. That's in essence, that's what it is. Because when they reserve the right to use nuclear weapons and violate the NPT, it means the NPT is only used to keep other countries from basically uh, um, developing nuclear weapons to to uh, reach the level of the United States. It, it means basically keep everybody else weak. So it's not, it's not a it's not egalitarian whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And of course. Yeah. Uh, name one nuclear power that's disarming. None of them have yeah. disarmed. The whole well, treaty was about nuclear disarmament, and and they're all increasing their uh, nuclear delivery capabilities and their nuclear weapon arsenals. And, uh, and the Russians are the same thing. But I like to point out the the Russians, the their nuclear weapons. They they they're developing them. I believe, and uh, and I think it's clear to anybody who studies it. It really is for defensive means because it's one of the, the biggest the biggest factor since 1991 that kept Russia from being pummeled by the United States was the nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. it's been it's been great talking to you, uh, Mahdi, and uh, appreciate we always appreciate your analysis on this program. Thank you very much for sharing your points, your perspectives with us. Thank you for having me. Madi Nazamroya is a frequent contributor to the Global Research website, award-winning author and geopolitical analyst, and the author of The Globalization of NATO from Clarity Press. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. This has been our final new program for the 2014-2015 broadcast season. The Global Research News Hour will make available repeat broadcasts and special programming during July and August. We'd like to thank our various affiliates across Canada and the United States for airing our program. <laughs> <laughs>